heads up, Riney. This will be a doozy. Welcome back and welcome to Season 2, Episode 16 of Me and My Friend Pete, another Donuts and Dimes production. The podcast where we explore all things THE Amazing Spider-Man comic book series. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety-pal, Gerald. Before we pull out of the station on this week's crazy train, we've got another new patron. The Jean Grey to my Cyclops, the Medusa to my Black Bolt, the Dare I Say, You Dare, Mary Jane to my friend Pete. Ladies and gentlemen, Nunya, mind your business, just know she's on the train. Welcome aboard, and you couldn't have picked a better time to hit your ride. But I'd avoid the boxcar because we've got a stowaway in the form of a one rampaging rhino and his first amazing Spider-Man appearance. He's been hired for a snatch and grab, and the grabby, Lieutenant Colonel John Jonah Jameson IV. Astronaut extraordinaire back from space and under armed guard. But Rhino's not just going to waltz in and snatch up the man if JJ and the G-Men and Spidey have anything to say about it. Actually, he's kind of big. I'd like to object. Shut it, Pete. We can promise action. And for Pete, we've got a motorbike. We've got new self-confidence. We've got a promise of a dinner date with Mary Jane. And more exciting than that, maybe. We've got the return of his girl Friday, the one and only Betty Brandt. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got the amazing Spider-Man number 41, the horns of the rhino. Let's swing. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kind of kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. The credits. This issue marks the beginning of Amazing Spider-Man Masterworks Volume 5, so you know we've got an extended credits page. The writer for all issues was Stan the Man Lee. The pencilers for 41 through 50, and annual number 3 was Johnny Romita. And Don Heck for annual number 3. The inkers were Mike Esposito for numbers 41, 50, and annual number 3, and John Romita for numbers 42 through 49. Letterers were Art, it's in the name, Simek for issues 41, 43, and annual 3, and Sam Gozham Rosen for numbers 42 and 44 through 50. The collection cover art for Masterworks Volume 5 was done by John Romita and Dean White. The color and art reconstruction was Michael Kelleher and Kellestrations. With special thanks to Tom Brevoort, and Ralph Macchio. The cover. The cover of issue 41 sees the title, The Amazing Spider-Man in Spidey Costume Red with a midnight blue shading our hero's name. And beneath it, his gray head partially blocking the D, E, and R of Spidey's name, Spidey's newest villain, and first Spidey rogue designed by John Romita to my knowledge, the rampaging Rhino. This isn't the Rhino's first appearance here on Me and My Friend P, however. We saw the beefy mitted bruiser in the season two bonus episode exclusive to patrons Spider-Man House of M number one or semi-charmed. Here are me and my friend Pete. Back to the rhino is a big, big boy. He's 710 pounds. And you can't teach that. He's six feet, five inches tall. He's wider than the ox and that guy's wider than barn doors. The husky brute is wearing a full body gray suit, his frame filling the page. His head, except for his face, Caucasian, blank, beady eyes, a wide nose and wider mouth, covered in a rhino's head. And I gotta say, the rhino head the villain is wearing looks like the dumbest creature I've ever seen. No offense to rhinos, they're my favorite animal, but I can see how this one wound up a skin suit. And speaking of skin suits, the rhino's entire body is wrapped in one. His fist, the size of Christmas hams. His feet, comically designed exactly like a real African rhino's. Three-pronged, toenailed and all. Fashion, Fashion on, on trashing. But either way, the rhino's come to play. He's got his massive left fist raised, punching through a brown wall. His rhinoceros-shaped right foot lumbering forward on a ground of yellow sand. His left foot behind him. And on the ground, 
between his feet in the background, his body curled towards stage left of the page, his left hand pressed against the ground, his right raised towards the rampaging rhino, powerless in the moment to stop the villain, is our hero, the suited and booted Amazing Spider-Man. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the amazing in black lettering and Spider-Man in sky blue, above the title of this issue, written in a red screen caption box and goldenrod font. The horns of the rhino. In the center of the page, on a white negative space with a large red spider web extending to all corners of the page, we see the rhino standing in the center of that spider's web. Both fists clenched, staring over his shoulder at the one and only Spider-Man, who's perched on an unseen wall above the villain in his classic red and blue. His right hand out of his side, his left reaching towards the rhino, both knees bent, his buggy eyes furrowed, his web wings working. Stage right, in the lower corner of the page, in a goldenrod yellow banner, we see, despite the extreme modesty for which we're so justly famous, we simply have to tell you that this is one of the greatest achievements of Stan Lee, writer, John Romita, artist, M. DeMeo, inker, Art Zemeck, letterer. In a row of screen caption boxes top to bottom stage left, we get first in sky blue. See the return of Betty Brent and the startling result that follows. Next in pastel yellow. See the surprise appearance of J. Jonah Jameson's astronaut son. Then pink. See the most exciting new purchase PD ever made. Then a pastel green. See Spidey fight the rhino, most fearsome villain of all. We've got a lot to see, so no time to say hello, goodbye. We turn the page. Page two opens, as it often does, with a caption box. Most superhero thrillers open with contrived action in order to hook you, but we know you'll hang around. And to prove our faith in you, let's visit Aunt May. We find the white-haired May Parker in her usual green dress sitting with her best friend, the graying, plump-faced Anna Watson, who's wearing a dark brown dress and red cashmere sweater draping her shoulders. The women are sitting on two comfortable-looking armchairs in the den of May's home. May's glad Anna stopped by, and Anna agrees, happy to have tea and catch up with a friend before telling May she wants to ask her something. The ask? Now that my niece Mary Jane took an apartment of her own, why don't you sell this house and move in with me? It would mean such a saving for you, and we'd be company for each other. May calls Anna the dearest thing, but standing and resting her hands on the back of her chair, says she can't because selling the house would mean there would be no one to take care of her codependent nephew, our friend Pete. She walks Anna to the front of the house, continuing, I'd love to, dear, but I just couldn't. There'd be no one to look after poor Peter. Anna listens and says she's got to run, but she's thinking that if Pete were her nephew, she'd try to make the kid more independent and goes on to think that the kid probably likes to be mollycoddled. And she's not wrong. Last issue, Pete had May worried sick to the point of a nervous collapse. And as soon as she got better, he had no problem letting her run around making him suit and pampering him as he lay in bed. Shameless. And speaking of our friend Pete, after struggling through the last four panels, you can be sure of one thing. Our story can't possibly move any slower from now on. So what say we join May Parker's fragile nephew now? We find Pete on the showroom floor of a car dealership in his usual SJB suit, black tie, goldenrod vest, all smiles, talking to a brown-haired car salesman in an olive suit. Both of them cheesing up a storm as they stare at a brown motorbike with chrome detailing and handlebars. Pete's telling the man he'll take it, and the salesman says the kid's been coming in every day for a month, so he's not surprised. When Pete asks if he can finance the motorcycle, the salesman says of course, as long as Pete's approved for the bank loan. He goes on to tell Pete that the kid will need a reference. But Pete's ready. He doesn't have any credit. He barely has any money. But smiling, he replies, Oh, that won't be any problem. I've been selling photos to Jonah Jameson for years. I'm sure he'll vouch for me. And Pete, this is bad business form. To any young person listening, before you put someone down as a reference, ask them. It does not matter if you think I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them, put them down, down if they, they wouldn't, wouldn't vouch for me. me. Some people do not like to be caught unawares. And some people probably don't want their name associated with you. It's probably personal. It's probably not. But it's respectful to the other person. Always, always, always consider that other person. Either way, the salesman says, great. Give the guy a call. He's going to draw up the papers. Thus, a few seconds later, we're at. 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown, Limestone Building, you can't miss it. Where we find J. Jonah Jameson in a brown suit, red tie, his Reed Richards hair working, the receiver of his phone pressed against his right ear, a cigar in his left hand, as usual. But he's not alone. A handsome red-haired man stands looking over his shoulder wearing a crew-cut hairstyle in military blues with bars and a silver eagle on his lapel. His matching hat on J.J.'s desk 
between them. It's JJ tirading. We're spaghetti and meatballs invented by Italian immigrants in NYC. Wait, what? Of course he's tirading. Parker, well, I not believe this time you brought me any photos this week. If you think, what? You want to buy a cycle and expect me to recommend you for the bank loan? You dialed the wrong number, kid. Try looking up Santa Claus. The soldier asked JJ if anything's wrong, calling the man dad. So now we know this is Lieutenant Colonel John Jonah Jameson IV. The first time we see him without his helmet, astronaut and son of JJ, last seen way back in Spidey's first story in the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man, simply titled Spider-Man. That's JJ's beef. Here on me and my friend Pete. Back to Jameson says there's no problem, just a pest on the line before smiling like a sleaze in a red negative space in the final panel. His cigar smoke wafting towards the ceiling, he thinks, but, but come to think of it, if he has a debt to pay off, he'd have to sell me more pictures, and I could buy him cheaper than ever from him. Miserable, he says. Tell you what, Parker, even though everyone says I'm too generous for my own good, I'll do it for you. Peach out, what? Great. JJ thinks, yeah, chortle, great. <laughs> I love that this man chortles in his mind. On three, JJ slams the phone down, calling himself, as usual, too soft-hearted, adding that he's always doing favors for people because he's just a bundle of good-natured jelly. He says nobody appreciates him being a nice guy, that his problem is he's too sweet, before shouting, That reminds me, it's time I was roasting Spider-Man's hiding in an editorial again. <laughs> nice guy, mine. Hot rod. Back to John asks JJ what he's got against Spidey, reminding JJ that the man rescued him a few years ago, and as a matter of fact, he never got to thank the hero. JJ says not to remind him that the guy never saved John, that John didn't need Spidey's help, and the webhead is nothing more than a glory-hogging itch. John replies that JJ's gotta be kidding, and JJ reminds him that he never kids. John's not sold though. His thoughts filling half the next panel, we see his capsule spiraling out of control towards Earth as he recalls how the capsule lost its guidance package and... It began plunging to Earth, hopelessly out of control. The space agency had no way of saving me until they gave the small packet to Spider-Man, who commandeered a military jet. We see Spidey atop the fighter jet flown by the insubordinate soldier from issue one, spraying a web line towards the capsule, shouting, this will be my first and last chance. If it doesn't work, look out below. I couldn't see the whole thing, but what happened next is history. History indeed, as Spidey grips his web line with both hands, being dragged above the earth through the air by the capsule, shouting all he needs to do is hang on. And hang on he did, with that amazing spider power of his, skillfully putting the guidance packet back in position. Spidey's on the front end of the light bulb shaped capsule now, clinging to the projectile for dear life above the rapidly approaching ground. As John, from inside the capsule, shouts that it's under manual control again, that he's going to eject the chute and land immediately. And we know Spidey's just reattached the 24-3B guidance component, saving the young astronaut's life. I'll never forget that day, Dad. Just as I'll never forget that it was Spider-Man who made my safe landing possible. And in the final panel, John Jameson has activated the chute on the space capsule as Spidey clings onto the outside of the flying machine. Spidey thinking, like I do when it comes to nodding on an astral level. Boy, the jewel inside this capsule is the real superhero. On four, John closes his flashback. Unfortunately, for reasons best known to himself, Spider-Man fled before anyone could find him or could thank him. The capsule safely aground in the thicket, its parachute slowly deflating in the background. Spidey races away from it, thinking he'd better make himself scarce. We're back in JJ's office next in the present as he pounds his right fist into his open left palm, shouting up from his seated position at his son that he would have never believed the astronaut would be fooled by such a cheap publicity stunt. He says Spider-Man sabotaged the rocket himself to play the hero later by saving John. John, smirking, asks who told his dad such a ridiculous story. And JJ replies, nobody. I made it up. I mean, nobody had to tell me. I can spot a phony act when I see one. He made it up. Shameless. In the next panel, JJ snaps. Spider-Man looming large in a yellow thought bubble of JJ's mind, both hands in his hair. JJ screams. Why, why, why must I be haunted, hounded, plagued by that sneaky, creepy, rotten, no good mass menace all my life? Why doesn't someone catch him, defeat him, squash him against the wall? Anything, so long as I get him out of my life. He pulls throwing darts from who knows where in the next panel, and we get an image of him just chucking the darts at a pinup of Spider-Man who is racing forward in the image. Towards the danger, I'm sure. JJ still shouting. 
Do you realize that if not for me and my courageous editorials, people would start making a hero of that little life? I have to keep reminding them in my paper that he's a cowardly crook hiding behind a mask to escape justice. And still they doubt me. There are actually lunatics who admire him. John, probably thinking his dad's lost it, grabs the man by both shoulders from behind, smiling. He asks if JJ thinks he's really being fair to the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens. To which JJ replies, Fair? What's that got to do with anything? He's the one who robbed you of your full share of glory from that space flight. John says he's made plenty of space flights since that moment, that JJ should forget about Spider-Man. JJ says that's the best idea his son's had all day. He asks John to tell him about himself. In the final panel, John in the foreground, stares stage right with his head down, the smile he's been wearing all this time finally gone from his face, replaced with a look of concern, says something strange happened on his last space mission. Jonah, wide-eyed with worry, asks what the man means, that Nassau didn't release any information about John's last flight. John says that they couldn't. He turns to face Jonah to open page five, growing more serious, telling his father, they had to make sure the space force wouldn't be harmful to Earth first. Of course, Jonah asks what we're all thinking, what space spores? And John begins his second story. Since the information has just been declassified, I can tell you now. At the apogee of my orbit, after completing my spacewalk, when I re-entered the capsule, I found that some mysterious spores had drifted inside with me. Apogee? The point in an orbit around the planet Earth where the orbiting body is farthest from the planet. Thanks, Miriam Webster. And we see John how we're used to seeing him. Blue space helmet on, staring out of the window of his space capsule as goldenrod dots of light dance and flicker around his face. Even after splashdown, they clung to my spacesuit, then later to my body. And we get a shot of John on a raft beside his capsule, waving down a whirly bird that's come to rescue him. John cannot get out of space without something wild happening to him, apparently. Because next, I was subjected to intensive tests for days, and everything appeared to check out a okay. The spores themselves grew weaker and weaker and finally just faded away. We find him in a laboratory, a yellow cord wrapping his upper chest with wire snaking up toward a black metallic band around his head. He's staring straight ahead as an astronaut in dress blues and two scientists look on, the younger of the scientists taking notes. The young scientist says John can be released now. The older says still, the effect of the spores may present themselves later, so John's gonna have to be under guard for at least six months. The astronaut in the room, undoubtedly his superior, says there's no other option because certain nations behind the Iron Curtain would give anything to examine him. The Iron Curtain being the nations of Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Albania, and the USSR during the Cold War in which this comic takes place. Back to! From that moment on, I've been under continual surveillance. Armed agents accompany me everywhere. We see John in his dress blues next, his uniform cap cocked slightly to the side, showing he's got a bit of swagger, flanked on both sides, by government agents. Stage right, a man with a pencil-thin mustache, olive suit, and matching fedora. Stage left, a man in a tan suit with a burgundy fedora and skinny green tie. John, all smiles, asks jokingly how long the two are going to be his nursemaids. Olive suit replies when they're absolutely sure the spores haven't had an effect on the man in any way. Tan suit adds, because if they did, you'd be a prize catch for any hostile nation on Earth. So these guys are making sure John can't be pumped or dissected for information. But what happens after the man comes back clean? Will they just abandon him? Those who want this information won't know he's clean and could kidnap him regardless. But I guess that's a thought for another time. We see John still within this six month period of protection because the next panel opens to an image of two agents, one blonde, tan suit, the other black haired, green suit, standing outside of JJ's door in a daily bugle, guarding its entrance with their hands behind their backs. As behind the door, John tells JJ that the study of those spores and John's response to them has given the space agency medics invaluable info that will give the US a boost in the space race. John mentions the two men outside the door and adds that another team will switch out with the guards every six hours. This man is covered. But even as Jonah Jameson is struck speechless for one of the few times in his life, an event is transpiring many miles away at our southernmost border, an event which is destined to seriously affect the lives and the safety of our colorful little cast of characters. We get a scene of cactus, sand, desert rock, and a red sky in a long horizontal panel. In the center of said panel, stomping towards stage left, his body leaning forward, his fist clenched, we see the rhino. And we know he's itching for a fight. At last, after all the long months of waiting, preparing, counting every minute and hour, it's finally time, time for the rhino to strike. From off panel, two men shout, Hey Sam, 
What in the name of creation do you call that? Nah, I don't know, but whatever it is, it's not getting past this border checkpoint till we find out. On 6, we see the two men who were shouting, security guards for who knows where, in SJB uniforms, one gripping the pistol in his holster stage right, the other's leg and lower torso prominent stage left. The rhino, lumbering forward in the background between the two, his body outlined in shadow. The guard reaching for his pistol points towards the rhino, shouting. Looks to me like it's just some nut in the rhinoceros That's what he said! Okay, mister, hold it up right there. Hold it, I said. The guard stage left chimes in. He's trying to make it past us. Come back! Come back or we shoot! When the rhino ignores their warning, the first guard screams. He's not stopping. Let him have it! The two guards fire a shot apiece, both bullets hitting the rhino square in the chest and immediately bouncing off. He is fortified. The rhino, feeling the ping of the bullets, changes direction and starts barreling towards the two men. And rhinos are my favorite animal on earth, so I know a thing or two. If he moves anywhere near the speed of an actual African rhinoceros, he's moving at minimum 25 miles per hour, max 31. The first guard shouts, He's picking up speed with every step! Our guns are useless! We got to... The second, Grab him! We have to try it! Before they're both sent sprawling by the rhino, who's now barreling through the desert, his horn out in front of his body. The guard in the background's hat goes flying, his head whipped back, pain etched all over his face. The guard in the foreground, his hat's tumbling off of his head. Both his hands are out in front of him in UFC KO arms, his fingers curled, his jaw facing north. The last position you want to be in, in the desert. Hearing the sounds of gunfire and the deafening stomp of the rhino's charge, additional guards quickly reach the scene, only to find. In the background of the final panel, we see two guards have come to the aid of the two felled by the rhino's charge. Both men, luckily only clipped by the rhino, are still alive, as one lays in a fetal position, clutching his head, probably wishing he would have taken that desk job that his brother lined up for him. What are you talking about? The other points towards the rhino from his knees, screaming, Look! Whoever, whatever that is, he's crashing right through the concrete blockhouse. As the rhino, head lowered, burst through the wall of who knows where? Easily. Ah, yes. Tried and true Marvelites won't need a building to fall on them in order to know that their friendly neighborhood Spider-Man will soon be in for one of the toughest fights of his entire crime-smashing career. No lies spoken as the rhino stomps through the desert to open page 7. A yellow arrow caption box points us into the next panel towards New York in the Northeast. Where we find an unusually cheerful Peter Parker wrapped in his own happy thoughts. Peter's walking down the street, the only person in panel moving towards us. And I see now why the kid rarely smiles. Because that thin top lip makes the bottom look so lonely when it disappears when he's happy. Either way... Pete's thinking, just can't wait to get my hands on that little two-wheel tornado. I'll bet riding it is almost as gloomy as wet swinging. I bet it is. I know people say when it rains, it pours, and that's true. But when the sun shines, it beams on the goldenrod kid. And then, as so often happens in this unpredictable world of ours, completely by accident, totally unexpected, a chance meeting. In a neon pink negative space, Pete's face in profile stage right, he smiles with wide eyes at the one, the only... Betty Brandt, the return, ladies and gentlemen, the return. She's in a two-piece green, I want to say, wool blazer skirt combo, bringing the fashion, a lime green scarf, and white opera gloves. Her bob, flawless, as usual. Pete shouts Betty. Betty shouts Pete. Our friend calls it a wonderful surprise. He says he didn't even know she was in town. They stand and chat as New York comes to life around them. Betty saying she just got into town. Adds that Peter certainly looks well. And Pete snaps. Relax. Fine. Pete thinks, after all these months, that's all she can say? Although, I can't think of anything better to say. He could start with, you look well too, Betty. But of course, Pete is all in his head right now. And I imagine an awkward silence here, both thinking about the nights of romance they had with one another, the times they sat together in the hospital room, waiting for the results of Aunt May's blood transfusion. The time they hid behind Betty's desk together as J.J. stomped around with his mouth webbed shut. Realizing he's got to say something, and this is the error where a lady wouldn't ask, Pete does. Would you mm, like a cup of coffee? Betty says that would be nice. They head to a soda shop and approach the counter. Romita working as the two take seats on the stools in front of the old school gooseneck soda spouts waiting for service. I had no idea soda shop sold coffee and looked it up. Of course most soda shops didn't. 
But Stan the man had a knack for having young people acting 30 years their senior. So I like to imagine they bought coffee, then headed to the soda shop to drink it, along with the guy behind them doing the same. But it's comic books. I'm letting it go. I'm coming on. Pete and Betty get to small talk immediately. Pete asking if Betty had a nice time on the coast. Betty asking if Pete and Aunt May are doing well. And Pete's like me. Small talk drives him batty. What's wrong? What's happened between us? We're like two strangers. Grouping for words. Betty doesn't mind though. She can carry a conversation. She asks how things are at the bugle. Pete says JJ's as grumpy as ever. Betty says she imagined he would be. Without her, that man is even the worse for wear. Oh, brother. This is sheer torture. And I'll bet it's just as tough for her. He leans on the counter in the final panel, scowling, his joy-filled day now ruined. All these months, I thought about her, dreamt about her, longed for her. So now she's returned, and nothing's there. Betty, a look of worry on her face, isn't thinking much better. That passion Betty once called a smoldering volcano has fizzled out to nothing at all. That's the way love goes sometimes. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity 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 Page. Page 8. Just in time to witness Pete think, Next I'll be asking her if she's read any good books lately. If only before Jameson's demon reporter Ned Leeds steps onto the scene. His signature blonde hair brushed backwards, wavy as usual, his suit brown, his tie green, his jaw chiseled, holding up a smile as he says he thought he saw Pete from the window before Betty turns her head to face him. And Betty says she'd know his voice anywhere. He places his right hand on Betty's right shoulder, asking if he's dreaming or not. Ned is visibly excited to see her and says so, taking her hand in the next panel. And I think this is a great bit of visual storytelling from Romita. When Pete and Betty saw each other on the street, they didn't even hug. Pete made no physical contact with Betty whatsoever. But Ned's made two subtle moves of interest, a touch on the shoulder, a taking of her hand. He still wants her. And the feeling is mutual. Betty is beaming as she says she thought about him often. Pete, watching this whole scene unfold, thinks, I never thought I'd be so glad to see old Nick. Our friend really is over his girl Friday. He hops off of his bar stool and into the next panel, checking the watch on his left wrist. Look, you two, I just remembered. I have an appointment. I'm afraid I have to run off now. Betty says that's too bad. Pete's not buying it. Who's she kidding? But he's glad to see me go as I am for the chance to escape. Translation? Don't piss in my water and tell me it's lemonade. Wait, what? Back to! Three exit the soda shop together in a beautiful long horizontal. Peter step ahead of Betty and Ned, stage right. Again, Romita's working. He's got a building behind them drawn in two-point perspective. A guy in an olive fedora walking behind them east to west as they're walking north to south. Even the shoulder of a person stage right in a tweed blazer. Everything about this image makes it come alive and feel like a busy New York street. Pete waves at the two thinking. Once, I thought I couldn't live without her. Now she's just another girl named Betty. Boy, have I grown up in these past few months. Don't break your arm there patting yourself on the back, Pete. He tells Betty he'll give her a ring later on sometime. Translation? See you when I see you. Betty tells him to do that. Translation? Don't do that. And Pete's picked up on the vibes. That sinks it. She feels the same way I do. She didn't even bother to give me her new address. New address or new number. She gave this man nothing and told him to do that. Ned tells our friend he'll see him around. And the two spin off. Pete walks into the next panel and right into a crowd reaction shot. Lost in his woes and I feel for him. Think about the first person you fell in love with and the feeling you had when you realized the relationship couldn't or wouldn't last. I think Pete's being pretty mature about things, but me, I was crushed. Tell a story, Hunt Ron. Cold Pete, cold. But her name meant beautiful, or pretty, or wise, or wisdom, or where she goes, happiness brings, or skill, or golden in Hindu. And if she didn't live up to her name, I'm not trying to objectify her or place my standard of beauty on anyone else. So think of what beauty means to you. That's what she meant to me. I was 16, she was 15, we met in math class, she was on honor roll, I was about to drop out for the second time. We both liked Bollywood, parfaits, and make-out sessions that could give a less skilled French kisser lockjaw. But alas, she went to India for the summer and when she came back, the feelings had fizzled. At least on her end, she broke up with me in a letter on the first day of school, and I'm sure that hasn't caused me any trauma at all. Probably, possibly, hopefully. Either way, when that first relationship ends, there are moments that you feel perfectly fine and tell yourself things like, it wasn't that serious, I'm only 16. Then, there are times when you think that and immediately after, you fall headlong into your feelings like we're falling through this segue into Pete's thoughts. I realize now, 
We never had anything in common. It's just that she was the first girl I ever thought I loved. But these months away from her, same. What's that? Pete's gotta put those sad thoughts to the side because a crowd's gathered outside of a TV shop window behind him. A woman in a red dress supremely stressed as her gloved hand sits at her chin, her daughter standing beside her, a couple of men with shock on their faces, looking on as a news anchor starts his spiel. Bulletin, these are the first news pictures to be released for television of the new, indescribably dangerous, and seemingly unstoppable menace who calls himself the Rhino. After crashing through every roadblock, he appears to be headed directly towards New York. And in the final panel, we see the rhino on screen, charging forward, kicking up dust, his wide gray frame filling up the TV screen. The rhino? Boy, if he's half as tough as he looks. But two things. First, how did the rhino get here so fast? I know the man can move, but it's been less than a day. Did he take the same route the one and only Sandman did on his crime spree from Maine to Mexico? Could be. And second, if you can, go back one panel. This is page eight. This is panel five. And as every adult in the panel has a look of concern on their faces, the little blonde girl holding her mother's hand is smiling like she welcomes the chaos a man with the name like the Rhino will bring. I think this is hilarious. And also, on a lighter note, I miss TV shops. Walking past them, seeing the same show on like 15 different screens of assorted sizes. I don't know, it's something nostalgic about it when I think about it for me. What a time. And that time lasted a while, because this is the 60s. I'm talking 90s. Back to, on 9, a red-headed kid argues with a sandy-haired one, the redhead screaming. Wow, I'll bet you the rhino was the strongest guy in the whole world. But Sandy isn't having it. He shouts back, jerking his thumb over his shoulder. You kidding? If he comes here, old Spider-Man will make mincemeat out of him. The redhead says, that'll be the day. And Sandy's jerking his thumb over his shoulder, which is comic and cosmic thumb wagging, because who but Pete Parker is standing behind him, perfectly placed. If he does reach the city, I probably won't have to pit my spider powers against his own strength. But it sure wouldn't break me up if he changes direction and let someone else tackle him. Pete's willing to mind his business on this one. Again, the rhino is six foot five, 710 pounds. And you can't teach that. But something's caught Pete's eye and he whips his head around. Say, isn't that Jonah Jameson over there? The Colonel with him looks familiar to me. And it is. Jameson has his hand on John's back, walking his son out of the Daily Bugle into a town car where two G-men are flanking the doors, one holding the door open. Pete recognizes John as the astronaut whose life he saved, but more important, recognizes JJ as his benefactor. Smiling, he walks forward shouting, Hi, Mr. Jameson. I want to thank you for helping me get my loan at the bank. John lets Jameson know someone's calling him. Jameson replies, Someone? Nah, it's only Peter Parker. When Pete tries to walk forward and shake the man's hand, he's stopped by the bodyguard who was holding the door open. The man throws his arm out in the next panel, placing a hand on Pete's chest and reaching into his blazer for the ratchet with his right. He wants to put two in the boy. Pete, scowling at the man like he'll break his arm without trying, asks who the guy is. Jameson asks Pete if he doesn't know federal agents when he sees them. But to be fair, Pete probably doesn't. The kids only ever had dealings with military men and police officers. If I saw a military man walking down the street with badges on his chest, I would not readily know their rank. Pete knew that John Jameson was a colonel just from looking at his badges. So the kid picks up on the world when he is inclined to deal with it. Either way, John dives into the backseat of the car. And as the car peels away from the curb, Jameson tells Pete that with his son being an astronaut, his safety is vital to the country. Pete says, like everyone else, he's watched John Jameson in orbit on TV and that JJ must be awfully proud. JJ says, thanks. Really? No, he goes tirading. You're blame right I'm proud. He's a real hero, not like that phony fraud Spider-Man. Oh boy, I better change the subject. And does, quick in the final panel. Anyway, Mr. Jameson, I appreciate your vouching for me at the bank. When I get my cycle, I'll be able to take more photos for you than ever. JJ, waving our friend off and turning his back, replies, Okay, okay, you're breaking my heart. Just make sure you give me some pics of the rhino. If he comes this way, that's all. Pete quips, saying he thought the man was going to ask for something hard. Minutes later, a thoughtful Peter Parker approaches his modest home in Forest Hills. And we find Pete walking with his back to us down his manicured Forest Hills neighborhood to open page 10, hands in pocket, as usual. Lost in thought. I wonder why those federal agents were guarding JJ's son. It must have something to do with a secret phase of our space program. Uh-oh. I just realized. How is Aunt May going to take the news of my new bike? And Pete wastes no time finding out. Opening the door of his home in the next panel, he finds May waiting and tells her immediately. 
May's reply? That's nice, Peter dear. I hope you're driving carefully. May may just be turning over a new leaf when it comes to Molly coddling her nephew. Climbing the stairs towards his room, Pete doesn't think so. She must have something else on her. I wonder what it is. May staring up at him tells Pete that Mrs. Watson came by and they had a lovely chat. When Pete asks about what, May starts to tell him about their convo regarding the two elders moving in together, but stops herself with a pshaw, saying it was just woman talk, nothing that would interest Pete. Pete knows she's hiding something, but won't press. In his room in the next panel, he hangs up his blazer in front of the closet, his spidey costume hanging on a hook there. Not a damn given about how reckless he is with that secret identity. May has already found his costume once in their house, so we know that she's about as snoopy as Reed Richards. But Pete will not learn that lesson. Pete's in his head thinking whatever May wants to tell him, she will when she's ready before continuing his thoughts. Gee, now that I'm not a kid any longer, how I'd love to have my own apartment. But how can I leave Aunt May all alone? If only there was someone to look after her. He stares at his spidey costume in the next panel, wishing he could throw it on and get some arachno cardio to clear away the cobwebs in his head, but can't because he's got a term paper to write. Study comes hard when a thousand scattered thoughts keep intruding. We find Pete at his work desk next, his left hand pressed against his head, his right gripping a pen pressed against an empty sheet of paper, his desk lamp shining its light on his hand, and thick textbooks on the desk nearby. Pete's thinking a lot of things, none of them about his term paper. Can't wait to pick up my new bike. Even when those agents were guarding Jonas, I'd never be able to have an apartment on my own. How could I ever have thought Betty was the girl? With a rhino week, do you and what's he after? Notice the sneaky way we change our scenes. Using Pete's last thought as a springboard, let's visit a sprawling railroad yard on the city's outskirts. And we're at said rail yard in the next panel. A green boxcar sitting docked as two guards in SJB uniforms stand outside of it. One tells his partner Charlie that he was right. There is someone camped out inside of it. Before the other shouts. In the line, Mac. This ain't a hobo hotel. It's not a hobo hotel to be sure. But a rhino's resting roost? Absolutely, because in the final panel, the rhino comes barreling from the tank, smashing through the wall of the thing, shouting, Look, at last! The shot guards dive out of the way, the one falling stage left, shouting, It's the rhino! We gotta stop him! He's on stage left to open page 11 in a stunning long horizontal, still shouting, My slugs bounce right off him! Call the precinct, Charlie! Tell him the guy's bulletproof! As his partner bolts away between the train cars, shouting back that he'll tell him, but he doesn't know what they can do about it. I don't either, because the rhino stage right proves that we can't ever call him the cheetah. His running form is atrocious. He's sprinting out of the panel, his left arm above his head, his right wide and out of his side as he lumbers forward. The bullet fired from the guards bouncing off of his shoulder, and these guards are lucky because the rhino can respond with death when mission comes first. Quick quiz. If you were Spider-Man trying to concentrate on a problem in advanced calculus, what would you do if the radio suddenly blared out? Rampaging Rhino has just been sighted on New York's west side. All citizens are urged to... Pete whips his head around to face the radio on his bookshelf, shouting that nobody will be safe while the Rhino's at large. In the next panel, he's already in quick change mode. His button up and SJB's on his chair stage left. He's got his spidey blue pants on. He's pulling on his spidey shirt. His gloves are draped over the edge of his bed, and he's shouting, May's ears and his secret identity be damned. If ever it was a time for a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man to make the scene... This is it! Scaling the sheer wall outside of his window in the next panel, Spidey's thinking whatever brought the rhino halfway across the country has to be big. But web swinging above the city in the next panel, Spidey wonders different. Or am I just convincing myself of that because I want to go into action again? Well, what's the diff? So long as I stop him. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Spidey may just be addicted to the action. Meanwhile, at Lieutenant Colonel Jameson's hotel suite. We're in a bird's eye view of John Jameson's posh hotel suite next, and the lieutenant colonel's got some style flaring for decor. Our tax dollars at work, to be sure. He's got a front door table sitting beneath a mirror near his ornate double front doors, next to a black accent wall with a green picture frame on it. I'm sure in the frame, there's a photo of him with his helmet on in it. And this frame is sitting next to pink drapes. In the center of the room, he and Daddy Dearest sit in armchairs in front of a glass table where what looked like a green candle, glass, and coaster are sitting. And I'm sure JJ is the one who set the glass off of the coaster on the bare top of the table. Either way, two large cracks reverberate outside the door. John asks if JJ heard that. Jameson says, yeah, that it sounded like gunfire. So we gotta know the guards in the hall are getting their guns off before they shout, we can't stop him. He's gonna, oh, Colonel Jameson, look out. It's the, ooh. But it's no use because in the final panel, as father and son stare at the door with wide eyes, there's a large stomp. 
that I'm sure shakes the items on the glass table. Jameson shouts, Great Caesar's ghost! What's going on out there? John? Take cover, Dad. This could be serious. A moment before the rhino comes crashing through the double doors of the suite, both fists raised, and we got... Be patient, be patient. I promise, we're getting there. Fine. Both men in the room retreat stage left. Jameson, eyes wide with terror, screaming. It's the rhino! John shouts that the man is there for him. Seconds later, the piercing wail of police sirens leads our wall-crawling wonder to a midtown hotel. We find Spidey clinging to a sheer wall with his left hand and both feet, facing us as he watches the squad cars beneath him converging across the street. Hoping he's not too late, he bounds over the gutter between panels and perches on the sheer wall outside of John's suite, peering upside down through the window. Spotting JJ, he knows he's in the right place. Inside, Jameson, for once, is reasonably irate, tearing into the demon, his arms waving. I don't care if he is bulletproof, he took my son! The guard in the olive suit, nursing his shoulder, tells Jameson to be easy, that the rhino won't get away, that they're throwing a cordon around the entire city. Cordon? A line of troops or a military post enclosing an area to prevent passage. Thanks, Miriam Webster. The guard in the green suit has already picked the phone and dialed Washington. But that doesn't change anything. We've got a good old-fashioned kidnapping on our hands. And Spidey's on the move. Both hands gripping a web line in the next panel. He speeds above the city thinking. That's all I need to know. The rhino was after Jameson's son. That's why the guards. He can't have gotten far. With luck, I'll spot him from up here. Or maybe I'll be luckier if I don't spot him. Spidey really doesn't want to go one-on-one with the rhino. But real heroes put themselves between the people and the danger. And make no mistake, the king of swing is a real hero. In no time. And the final panel. Spidey's... Spotted the rhino stomping along a sidewalk with John slung over his shoulder like a sack of weightless potatoes. With a final thought? There he is, carrying Colonel Jameson as though he's weightless. He'll be gone by the time the police can hear. So it's up to old Spidey again. Spidey leaps onto the shoulders of the rhino to open page 13, shouting, Well, here goes nothing. And we got, you can say it, action. John slides off of the rhino's shoulder in the next panel, still unconscious, as the horn-faced bruiser throws a double-fisted overhead strike, falling towards the ground, connecting with Spidey's head and chest. Spidey rolls off of the bruiser and pushes himself from the floor, burying his face in his right hand, bracing on the wall of the next panel, trying to collect himself. Brother! He not only looks like a rhino, I feel like I've just been butted by one. That's a big boy, Spidey. You better get ready, because he's coming again. The rhino shouts that Spidey's a fool, that this wasn't his fight, but he brought it on himself before lowering his head and barreling towards the golden liability. But Spidey, agility on, best ever, leaps out of the way, just in time, too, because the rhino's head smashes through the brick wall where Spidey was just standing, horn first. Spidey looks on in shock in the next panel as the rhino pulls his head from the brick wall, thinking the man isn't even hurt. He's only gotten angrier before shouting. Now look, hardhead, you can't run around putting holes in walls that way. Think how drafty you're making it for the people inside. The rhino, the usual dull expression on his face, replaced with anger, tells Spidey he's going to make our hero drafty. He's going to try to put an extra hole in the boy. Spidey goes with an age-old classic. Has anyone ever told you you're anti-social? before thinking that John is safe, now he can cut loose. And he does. In the final panel, he throws a right cross that connects with the rhino's chin, shouting. In case you didn't know, I'm not exactly a 97-pound weakling myself. And he's not. I mean, for all the good it does him, the rhino jerks back but doesn't lose his footing, forcing Spidey to think, maybe I am. He didn't seem to feel it. On 14, Spidey gripping his right wrist with his left hand, jagged lines all around his fist letting us know he's in pain, stands in front of an old school telephone booth as the rhino talks his smack. My bones can't hurt me. Did you think your cleaning blow would have any effect? Spidey's not convinced. He says, yeah, he did. Thinking, and darn it, broke my hand. The rhino advances again, throwing a right of his own that Spidey leaps huh. over, landing deftly on his tiptoes of a nearby sheer wall arms wide, web wings stretched beneath them, and you know Spidey's gotta milk this guy for information. Look, Riney, your strength can never match my spider speed, so why don't we talk things over? For starters, how about telling me what you want with Colonel Jameson? Rhino says he doesn't want anything with Jameson, that there are countries who do though, and they'll pay a fortune for the young astronaut. Short and sweet, no mighty monologue. Rhino keeps it simple, I came to kidnap, and barring that, 
I came to fight. Spidey shouts that he knew it had something to do with the space race. Before the rhino, with the beefiest left hand I've ever seen, slaps Spidey across the face so hard, the hero falls from the wall, realizing the rampaging rhino is faster than he thought. Shouting that Spidey's speed won't save him, the rhino tries to lower the boom, leaping towards our hero with a hammer fist in the next panel. But you know what the agility is on. Spidey hits the floor and slides beneath the leaping rhino, shouting, Is your constant inch? Something must be making you so irritable. As the brute's beefy fist cracked through the concrete where Spidey should have been. I imagine the rhino spins around in the gutter between panels as Spidey does a spin a rooney, his right foot connecting with the rhino's chest, sending the man lumbering backwards where he smashes into a light post, densing it But Spidey's taking lumps with every blow he connects. Uh, I wonder if he was bitten by a radioactive Sherman tank. Paraphrase from Wikipedia. The M4 Sherman tank was the most widely used tank by the Western Allies during World War II, named by the British after General William Tecumseh Sherman, one of the greatest generals of the American Civil War. And if these guys aren't going to war. The rhino shrugs off the blow and the impact and barrels towards Spidey again in the final panel. Our hero now back in front of that green telephone booth, still quipping. For crying out loud, what does it take to stop you? You forgive me if I don't wait for an answer. But Spidey's no fool. He knows he can't face the charge and has got to move. And move he does, as only Spidey can. On page 15, in this, our panel of the week. With sirens blaring from around the corner, Spidey thinks that the police are on their way, but they won't reach the fight scene for another few minutes before he leaps over the charging rhino towards the dented light post, stage right, grabbing the post with both hands, right leg straight, left bent, as the rhino decimates the phone booth with his charge. We've got glass flying, metal flying, the phone receiver cord hanging onto the base of that telephone for dear life, and the king of whip starts firing quips. Hey, Rhiney. Wouldn't it have been easier just to jump a dime in the slot? The rhino shouts that our hero is going to live to regret mocking him. He rips the telephone from the wrecked phone booth wall and hurls it towards Spidey, sending our hero scurrying up the pole. And I imagine dimes are flying everywhere. Rhino shouts that nobody has ever made a fool of him. But Spidey's not buying it. He replies. <laughs> he replies. No. What about the clown who designed those goofy threads of yours? Fashion on trashing is the rhino's outride. Spidey thinks, careful Spidey, he's getting set to charge again. And has to leap head first, arms wide, fearlessly towards the ground in the final panel as the rhino crashes into the base of the pole, horns first, screaming. An easy dodge for our hero? He shouts he was leaving it anyway. Page 16 opens with a long horizontal. The rhino stays left beside the lamppost, now ripped from the ground, still connected by a large screw and a chunk of cement. Romita, that's the senior, working. The rhino is screaming that there isn't a place high enough that he can't shake Spidey down from as he spins to face Spidey again, who crouched, pushes off the floor, the light post smashing into the ground near his hands. And Spidey's not talking, he's thinking. One thing's pretty obvious, I sure can't hurt her. My only chance is to tire him out. If I can dodge him while I'm doing it. A close up in the next panel, Spidey wags a fist with one hand, a just bring it finger towards the villain with the other, and continues talking his smack. Okay, Rhiney, come and get it. I'm through running now, so here's where I knock you into the middle of the next week. The rhino is slowly losing it. He stamps his foot and starts another charge, practically begging. Just stay where you are, Spider-Man. That's all I ask. Just stay where you are. Spidey replies, Sure, Hornhead, I'll stay. Lion! As the rhino lowers his head and rushes forward, Spidey sidesteps, grabs the man with both hands by the love handles, and slams the villain's head square into the brick wall, making me wish this is the one time our hero wore a red cape, because he's working like legendary Spanish matador Joselito right now. As the rhino spits brick out of his mouth, Spidey shouts, Aw, clumsy me. I wouldn't made you trip, pussycat. Call this man a pussycat. My man Spidey working right now. But Spidey's got to keep his head in the game because he's sent reeling by a right backhand in the next panel, kicking himself for forgetting about the rhino's speed. The rhino, probably concussed at this point, shouts, Now I've got you. And pulls himself from the hole in the wall. 
on his rear in the final panel. I imagine scurrying backwards on his butt. Spidey says that line went out with the perils of Pauline. Paraphrase from Wikipedia. The Perils of Pauline is a 1914 American melodrama film serial starring Pearl White as Pauline and Crane Wilbur as her husband-to-be, Harry. The movie's premise sees Harry wanting to make an honest woman out of Pearl, who refuses to marry the man before she's lived a life of excitement. She creates a pre-marriage bucket list and agrees to marry Harry once she's ticked off every adventure on it, from riding in a hot air balloon to touring a submarine. Exciting things in their own right, if not made more dangerous by plots on her life by her father's secretary, a one Raymond Owen played by Paul Panzer, who wants to kill Pauline to get her inheritance. Pauline saved by Owen a bunch, saves herself a bunch more, and at the end of the serial, finally agrees to settle down with Harry. And Owen? He's drowned by a Navy sailor he can't blackmail. The film's legacy? It is the premier example of what scholar Ben Singer calls serial queen melodrama. And Pauline is the direct inspiration to my favorite race car driver, a one Penelope Pitstop. Eat your heart out, speed racer. In 2008, The Perils of Pauline was selected by the Library of Congress for the United States National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I'm willing to bet it's all three. Thanks, Wikipedia. Back to you. In Dire Straits, Spidey goes to play two of the Golden Liability Playbook. Play two? If fists don't work, there's always the shooters. And let's fly with his left hand shouting. Today's swing is on the far more introspective. Oh, by the way, Pardon my webbing. Snaring Rhino in a blanket as the web falls over the man's head and raised arms. On 17, in a sky blue negative space, the Rhino asks if Spidey thinks his puny webbing can hold him. Spidey crouched low, his left fingertips pressed against the ground, his right fist clenched, ready to attempt a charge of his own. Says probably not, but hey, now's as good a time as any to find out. He tells Rhino to take it easy, that the webbing's expensive, before changing his mind. Come and think of it, if you want to break the webbing, maybe this will help and leaps through the gutter between panels, his arms folded across his chest, hugging himself, smashing his left shoulder into the rhino's gut. And I know Spidey's shoulder connected with impact because Spidey's head connects with the rhino's ribs with so much force, the man's body curves around our hero's dome. Those turntables, baby, those turntables. I know the rhino's ribs are cracked right now, at least. Spidey bounces off of the rhino and right into his Birkin, dodging a right haymaker from the brute in the next panel, screaming. Nuts. That's what he, he have enough sense to fall down when you get Nuts. your lips. But he's thinking that Bill was a little slower. He'd finally begin to get tired. I hope. And the rhino's got a bee in his bonnet. All I want to do is smash him once. Just once. He raises his right foot and stomps a hole in the concrete as Spidey gets low and gets dodgy. His left leg straight, left hand pressed on the ground, arms straight. He bends his right foot and yanks his right hand towards the sky, away from the rhino's thick booty, screaming. Uh-uh, no fair. Kickies don't count. This man said kickies don't count. And Spidey makes his move. Pushing off the floor in the gutter between panels, he leaps onto the rhino's shoulders, wrapping his legs around the bruiser's neck and locking his feet at the ankle in a modified triangle hold, thinking a mile a minute. He's on balance again. This is my chance. I've got to find out. Is he a human powerhouse wearing a nutty costume? That's what just he's saying. Mary Jo, who gets his power from those duns. Before shouting, Heads up, Rhiney. This will be a doozy. The rhino screams, You'll never be able to. Using the rhino's own momentum against him, Spidey does a modified Hurricane Rana, driving the rhino's face, not the horn, his face, jaw, chin, cheeks, the whole shebang, into the concrete of the final panel, crushing the pavement beneath the sparring duo. Rhino's whole body rises from the ground, both feet north, the last position you want to be in when your face is on the floor. I wonder if I really do this to preserve justice and to safeguard the human race, or is it just that I love to hear the crazy sound effects? The sound effect? For funk. And to answer your question, Spidey, a little of this, a little of that, I'm sure. 18 opens with both the Rhino and John Jameson struggling to their feet, and if the ground doesn't tell the tale. All around John, smooth pavement. Spidey successfully put himself between the person and the danger. All around the rhino, craters in the ground, concrete missing, rubble, a broken telephone booth, glass. Spidey, more concerned with John than his own handiwork, is glad the astronaut is okay, but our hero's got problems in the now. The rhino is back on his feet 
and takes a wobbly step towards Spidey with murder in his eyes. Spidey's not worried though. We can't even see our hero in this panel. We're looking at the world through his eyes, but the kid's shadow lets us know that he's got his hands on his hips. Confident. I'm sure his legs are shoulder length apart because he is swinging past his knees just as the police pull up in two squad cars. I'm sure Joe and Tomas heard about the brawl and heard the rhinos bulletproof, so they've come to get those guns off. And I like to think it's Joe who hops out of the squad car in an olive suit, gun raised in the next panel, ready to let bullets and expletives fly. But Spidey, raising his right hand to wave them off, again, great art because we see that hand waving in shadow, our hero shouts, hold it fellas, save your bullets, you won't be needing them. The rhino takes another step forward, his whole body shaking and falls at our hero's feet in the next panel. Out cold, this fight is over. In the background, JJ races to his son kneeling beside him, asking if the man's okay. And John's a little lumped up, but none the worse for wear. He says he's fine. Beside them, Joe tucks his gun into his jacket, scowling. You won't be getting your gun off in this one, Trigger Man. In the next panel, JJ has wasted no time. Helping his son to his feet, Jameson points a finger at Spidey, screaming. What's everyone standing around for? You've got the rhino. Now here's your chance to make it a double play. Grab that wall crawler also. Jameson wants them to turn too. Shout out to Jeter. Shout out to Cano. But no! Joe asks on what charge. Jameson's like, screw a charge. He's a fink. Call this man a fink. Translation, an unpleasant or contemptible person, or a person who informs on people to the authorities. Jameson called our hero, who's now saved his son's life, twice, a magoom and a rat. Spidey, waving a dismissive hand, replies, It takes one of no one, mister. And Jameson, the prince of privilege, shouts that he's going to sue Spidey for slander. But it has to be a lie to be slander. If Big Mouse bounces off long enough, he'll convince him I'm a one-man crime wave, so I'd better cut out now. He leaps over JJ's head and onto the sheer wall of the building behind them, staring down at the scene now. The rhino, face down, Al Cobb, Joe kneeling beside him, his gun back in his hand like he's ready to shoot the villain in the face if the man gets froggy. JJ shouting up at our hero, both arms raised, and John, his hands on JJ's shoulders, probably reminding his dad that Spidey saved the day and his life again. But there's one thing really worrying me. How are they gonna keep the Rhino and John until they get him there? And that's a solid thought. But we already know in the 616 universe, Spidey's villains never get more than six months in the slammer anyway. Less for good behavior. Either way, we find the Rhino being carted off on a stretcher in the final panel. Joe watching the paramedics work, his gun still drawn on the villain. It's amazing. We couldn't get that Rhino suit off him. We'll have to lock him up wearing it. The paramedic asks a good question. He says, what happens when a guy comes to? That he'll just go crashing through the walls. And Joe, probably hoping Rhino will so he can get his gun off, says they'll worry about that when the time comes. While in the foreground, stage left, JJ is still stuck on Spidey as he talks to John. Imagine that Wesleyan weasel getting away scot-free! When John reminds JJ that the King of Swing stopped the Rhino and probably saved his life, JJ takes out his paddle and goes kayaking down that good old river called the Nile. Baloney! He was just out to save his own scrawny neck! Spidey had absolutely no dog in this fight. We know the kid had a paper to write and was all the way in Forest Hills, Queens. So JJ, as always, is wrong. 19 Officer John telling JJ he might be right, lying. But if it wasn't for Spidey, he'd probably have been delivered to the highest bidder behind the Iron Curtain. JJ's not trying to hear it. Well, let me tell you something. He slams his fist into his open palm in the next panel in his groove. For all we know, that masked menace wanted to grab you away from the rhino so he himself could capture you. I don't trust any so-called superheroes, and least of all, that blankety-blank web-shooting creep. John's like, Dad, chill. You're going to pop a blood vessel. Think of your blood pressure. JJ shouts that he wishes he could prove Spidey's no good. John, over this childish outburst, tells us that he's got to get back to the cape and hope JJ can calm down and forget about Spider-Man. And JJ's back in his kayak. Spider-Man? I never give that little life a thought. As far as I'm concerned, he doesn't even exist. Spider-Man? Who's he? Never heard of him. <laughs> JJ's now in full-on breaststroke in that river. Meanwhile, Spidey's scaling a sheer wall, lost in thought. I can't stop worrying about the rhino. We know so little about him. If only I knew his origin, how he got his power, and if he has any weaknesses. Next time, he'll be a lot harder for me to handle. Maybe if I study the photos I took. But slapping himself in the forehead, Spidey realizes a major blunder. Oh no! I forgot to set my automatic camera. That means no pics. And that means no donuts? No dimes. But our hero's chagrin vanishes the next day as he takes possession of his new cycle.
And their caption tells no lies as we watch Pete in his goldenrod kid outfit on his new motorbike racing away from the dealership as a Mr. Kraft waves him off, telling him to enjoy it. And Pete does. Racing away towards Empire State University in the gutter between panels, he pulls up the stop in front of the college cool kids. That's Harry Osborne in his green suit, black vest, bow tie, waves on swim. That's Flash, fashion on trash and Thompson in a brown suit, black tie, hair as golden as the sun. And that's the one and only Gwen Stacy, gripping a yellow textbook, wearing a black, form-fitting, sleeveless, knee-length dress, her platinum blonde hair flowing to her shoulders and curled at the ends, with clips pinning her bangs up to keep the hair out of her high-cheekboned beauty of a face. She is style-flaring and keeping it simple at the same damn time. Pete's thinking, and left. I can get somewhere in a hurry without having to switch to my Spider-Man identity. Before Harry shouts for the group to look at him. Flash, salt spilling out of his mouth all over the ground, says maybe Pete's turning human, as Gwen tells our friend to hold up. And Pete's feeling himself. Oh, my little cheering section. He hops off the bike, leaving Harry and Flash to mire it, as my weightlifting friends would say, and walks over to the side with Gwen, asking her if she likes it. Gwen says it's a knockout. Pete thinks, just like you are, Gwendolyn. Was I ever so wrapped up in Betty that I couldn't see this little pinup under my nose? Oh, that fickle, fickle heart has found a new flutter for another. In the final panel, Gwen tells Pete she didn't think of him as the motorcycle type. And Pete doesn't know how to take this, thinking Gwen looks disappointed. And if you recall, Pete was horrified of Gwen thinking he was just some nerd. His biggest fear, despite all his battles with supervillains, despite the countless times he's risked his life, is being unable to reinvent himself but he has no idea that Gwen has a crush on him partly because he's a heartthrob, but mainly because the kid has an egghead on par with, well, Dr. Elias Starr. Who? Egghead. Oh, right. But if Pete's frustrated by this, he doesn't let on. Cool as old blue eyes from Jersey in a fedora, he walks away from the gang on 20, smiling over his shoulder. Lady, there's a lot you don't know about me, but stick around. I'm planning to educate you. When Gwen asks what's gotten into the Golden Rod Kid, he says maybe the real him is beginning to shine through. And maybe it is. The confidence Pete's gained as Spider-Man is starting to bleed into his Peter Parker personality, and I love it. I'm from the Bronx, the real Gotham City. So you know Batman is one of my guys, and one of my favorite things about the Dark Knight is his ability to portray his Bruce Wayne self as charming, confident, and charismatic. But in reality, that's not who he is at all. That's an act. I love Pete for the exact opposite reason. It has always been hard for me to believe that anyone who knows Spider-Man and Peter Parker as separate entities, and it's a lot of people as this history unfolds, can't tell that the two men are one person. Spidey is not an act. Pete is not an act. The only difference between the two is whether the mask is on or off. His successes as a superhero has given Pete a huge amount of confidence despite his hard knocks and moments of self-doubt. And we're starting to see that bleed between his two lives Begin your pontificating. Back to either way, Peter's a horn dog in this moment. Despite his cool exterior, he's damn near transformed into the howling wolf in his mind. Those eyes, those lips, she's too much. Flash, grimacing in the next panel, asks what's gotten into Mr. Bookworm. Gwen, turning to leave, smiles, saying, Whatever it is, Flash, why don't you get friendly with him? Maybe some of it will rub off on you. Before thinking, the way Pete looked at me, like he was seeing me. For the first time. Yeah, girl. Vision 20 Gwenny now. In the next panel, Pete's pulling up to the front porch of his Forest Hills home as Anna and Queen May look on. May's in a royal purple dress, a white apron over it, and is wearing her usual red, a lavender cashmere sweater draping her shoulders. Anna says that must be the new motorcycle Pete's bought for himself. May goes mommy mode immediately, saying she hopes riding in the open air won't affect her nephew's sinuses. Pete says hi, parks the bike, and hops off. Standing next to May in the next panel, he asks, There it is. Isn't she a beaut? May says, Yeah, it's a real pussy willow. Anna's like, Come on, May, get hit with the times. The kids are saying pussycat now. May caresses Pete's cheek, saying he knows what she meant and that he's been a great kid, so she's glad he cheated himself. Pete, beaming at his aunt, replies, Thanks, Aunt May. You're a real pussy willow. Anna says the woman may have just started something. Before telling the two she's got to run, but tells May not to forget. Both May and Pete are coming over to her place for dinner on Sunday night. May says she hasn't forgotten that she's anxious for Pete to meet Mary Jane. Pete thinks, uh-oh. And if you recall, Pete's been dodging this meeting since May first mentioned her way back in ASM number 15. That's Craven the Hunter. The most dangerous, dangerous game. Here on me and my friend Pete.
Back to May knows Peter's been shucking and jiving on the subject. She wabs a finger at her nephew in the next panel, telling him that Mary Jane's been waiting to meet the kid for months, so he's going to be there with no excuses. Pete, kickstarting his motorcycle, thinks, I guess I'll just have to get it over with once and for all, before telling his aunt he'll be there and driving off. In the final panel, Pete drives down the sidewalk of his Forest Hills neighborhood, his thoughts on a one, Mary Jane. Wouldn't it be funny if she's a real tonto? Aw, uh, come on, Mr. Parker, stop daydreaming. You know there isn't a chance. Beneath this, we get a caption box closing the issue. Next issue. We don't have to tell you we'll have a great battle with more sensational spidey action. You know all that. So we'll just tip you off that you're finally about to meet Mary Jane. And we're out. The time is almost upon us, true believers. But let's stay locked in the moment. The Rhino is one of my favorite dull-witted villains. But I love that he plays his position. You will never see him in a mastermind role. He will never prattle on in a monologue filled with flowery words and poetic threats. No. You need something smashed. You need something grabbed. You need a bodyguard to stand as a rugged seawall between you and a hail of bullets while you rob a bank or set up your world-ending antimatter hedron collider bomb or protect your kid in the universe of House of M. He'll be there. You cut the check and he'll handle the rest. And this is the very first time we get to see that mentality in action. If you can check out this battle, you should. Because once that action gets going on page 13, it doesn't let up for four and a half pages. Johnny Romita, that's the senior, knows action and it is a treat to watch that man work. I love his mastery of anatomy and how he plays with scene layouts, keeping every moment, even in talking head pages, engaging. Dick Goat left our hero in the best of artistic hands. Another tight, fun story from Stan Lee. He's got Pete coming into his own, becoming more of his true self that he tended to hide beneath the mask in his earliest days. He's got a more fleshed out version of John Jameson. Great dialogue between Spidey and the Rhino. Great dialogue between Pete and the ESU gang. I love the way Pete was flirting with Gwen Stacy. Great tie rating from JJ. And we finally got a promise of Mary Jane in ASM number 42. But that's not next week. Next main episode, we cover Amazing Spider-Man Annual number three. To become an Avenger. Will Spidey break into the big leagues and become the newest member of Earth's mightiest heroes? Come back here to find out. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you sign up to patreon.com slash HSPP in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers, patrons have a vault filled with bonus episodes covering comic book stories from all over the multiverse of comic book universes. Next bonus episode, Avengers abound and assemble because we're back in Marvel's house of ideas running through New Avengers Volume 1, number 20. A tale that sees Earth's mightiest heroes going toe-to-toe with one of Earth's mightiest mutants, Magneto. Question. What happens when a depowered master of magnetism regains his power at the hands of a man who has absorbed his lost their gifts on M Day? I can promise you this. Spidey's not happy he's chosen this moment to pull out his new iron spider armor. It's gonna be a barn burner. And if you become a patron before ASM number 50, you'll receive a special thank you gift for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me in myfriendpete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. The panel of the week can be found at patreon.com slash HSPP. Thank you so much to all our patrons. We couldn't do it without you and we wouldn't want to if we could. Please like, please comment, Give please share, please take care, you? and please think of the world and be true to yourself. All that said, that's all that said. That Dusty trails are calling, so there's no use stalling, but you know the tagline for the people. With great power, baby, you got to make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.